Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by the professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin. Ken, welcome back to the Politics Guys. Hey, Trey, it is great to be back. It is fun to be back. It's fun to be because we always have the best weeks and that 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 is why we get all the best stories. Um, and, and I'm assuming that that is, in fact, a, a result of supernatural power in our favor. Uh, <laughs> but be that as it may, uh, on a less funny note, you know, we, we kind of had the stories ready to go for this week. And then this morning I was uh, I walk into school, I was walking, uh, walking into campus and my wife, uh, who rarely shares things with me, uh, she sent me a text and she said, I'm sure you've already seen this, but. Uh, and it was uh, the, uh, the death of Diane Feinstein uh, this morning at age 90. And the answer was I, I hadn't seen it. It actually had come out while I was walking over here to campus. Uh, and so I thought we'd kind of start with that, Ken, since that's, uh, you know, something new that's been going on here. Uh, and, you know, again, I mean, this isn't going to be a surprise to listeners. I had a lot of disagreements with her policies, but that doesn't mean that I don't have uh, admiration for her as well on a number of fronts. Uh, so just to list some of those things, Ken, you know, she's the first woman to hold a number of important political roles in the U.S. Senate, including the Senate Rules and Administration Committee, the Senate Select Committee, which was huge. Um, she's also the longest serving woman in the Senate and the longest serving senator from California. I mean, again, you're 90. That's kind of what happens when you're there. I'll say the one area for which I will always have a large amount of respect for Feinstein was her 6,700 page report in the aftermath of 9-11, which was multi-year process of looking at the what was at that time called those enhanced interrogation methods used by the CIA to try to uncover, quote unquote, critical intelligence. And what she uncovered effectively was that nothing ever really came useful that that could even begin to balance uh, the horrific treatment of those prisoners. Uh, and so that was one area where, I, you know, I, I think that uh, report will stand as one of a, a, a across the border or across the aisle area where I think she did some of her absolute best work. Um, and so, yeah, but I mean, of course, that also brings us, you know, we've been talking about this online and, and uh, we've been talking, we've talked about on the show, uh, you know, the kind of the, the downside here is, is one of the areas where, where I've been outspoken is to say, yeah, I think people need to do what uh, uh, Mitch Romney did and, and, and step back before you're 90. Uh, and so this leaves obviously as well a, a, a political uh, fight to be uh, finished, right? I mean, the, the Thursday night finds the Einstein's dead. And already, uh, you know, Governor Gavin Newsom from California has to figure out what what his replacement's going to be. And there is sure to be a a spirited battle on that front. And uh, we already know that he he doesn't have the same five weeks he had to replace Kamala Harris. And so, so Ken, what are your thoughts on, on Feinstein? 
Yeah, you know, I, um, uh, <laughs> I, you said all the the nice things about her long career, and I, I certainly uh, agree about all of it. She was a great pioneer. She did great work uh, working with Senator John McCain, in fact, on the the report, the the torture report. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, and uh, but I do think it's been a couple years. Uh, you know, a couple years now. She should have retired. It, it's it's she did really great harm to her constituents, great harm to the U.S. Senate, um, and I would say because of how closely divided the Senate has been, you know some harm to the whole American people by um, by hanging on into her period of dementia, which she's basically been in. And, uh, um, you know, it, it, it's it's a problem. And I, I like your, um, you know, looking at Romney as someone who's, uh, you know, leaving uh, on a note of dignity. Now, I'm sure he also, you know, would be facing a very contentious. He would he would have been reelected, but he would have had a lot of mud slung at him by all the Trumpers if he ran for reelection. And, you know, I'm sure that's nothing he relished. And, and uh, Feinstein doesn't really have to deal with that exactly. But um, she uh, yeah, she, it's, it isn't it isn't really good when when um, people are hanging on beyond the point where they can show up for work or where they can keep paying attention. And it's also going to create a huge problem in uh, California uh, Democratic politics now because you, you got the, the governor who um, already had to make one replacement because Kamala Harris uh, got reelected and then and then gave up her seat to become vice president. And so Gavin Newsom already um, made one appointment That's a, that was a bit of a free-for-all where uh, identity politics became a big thing. And, and when he did give it to a, a, a Latino man, um, he promised that uh, if he gets to fill another vacancy, uh, it will be with an African-American woman. And now he's in this kind of situation where there's already a bunch of primary contenders um, for, for Feinstein's seat. One of them is an African-American woman, and he's he's uh, which is Representative Barbara Lee. Um, and he's and he's got to decide to keep the promise that he made. If he puts Barbara Lee in, then he's really putting his finger on the scale in the in the uh, emerging primary race. Let's be honest, his hand, his hand, yeah, his hand, yeah, not just his finger. Um, you know, I think in a way that um, is not what he wanted to do. I think he wanted to maintain neutrality in that. And uh, I, my sense is that he will uh, appoint an African American woman, and that it will not be um, uh, Representative Barbara Lee. Um, it'll be someone who will probably commit not to run in the primary to keep the seat, because I, I think. Um, uh, the, the factional politics within the California Democratic Party, uh, Newsom wants to try to stay out of that as best he can and not wade into it. So that's what I think he'll do. But it, it, it is it is a, a little bit of a mess. And when you think about what we're going to talk about later in the show today, what's going on in Washington right now today, um, it's not a good time uh, for, for the Senate to be shorthanded. Yeah, I can't help but draw some comparisons uh, to what effectively happens at the end of Truman's. Uh, uh, presidency where his wife is effectively the one and his doctor are effectively the ones who are making things work. And, and we look at that as being a problem. And it was. And yet, uh, when it comes to the Senate and maybe even the presidency uh, in the future, you know, we just seem to be wanting to set ourselves up on that front again and again. And it is unfortunate because, again, like I said, I, I, I did not agree with all of, uh, of Feinstein's, po Feinstein's policies. But yet I, I did have, like, again, as we were talking about, I, I think that work uh, on torture will go down as one of the most important works of hers in the Senate. Um, you, you hate to have to see those kinds of things overshadowed a little bit because of the way you end. And, but, but that is what happens when you... You know, just you, you can't find the the graceful exit uh, uh, at the end when you're doing it. And, and this leads me to something else I was curious about, Ken, that I think we can move on uh, in, in terms of news, uh, uh, Newsom and, and replacing the seat. 
Do you think that he made a mistake in in trying to say definitively, like, this is the kind of person on um, attributes that I'm going to appoint no matter what? And and again, I'm someone you know, we've had a lot of agreement when it comes to understanding systematic and institutionalized racism. But at the same time, I can't help but feel that that coming out in that way is counterproductive and it, it backs you into the kind of corners that you were just talking about. So what were your what, what did you think about that? Just. Yeah, so I, I would say, you know, we talked about this before because President Biden had made a similar promise about um, the U.S. Supreme Court appointment. And uh, and then he kept it and he appointed uh, Katani uh, Brown Jackson, who's, uh, I think, a extremely high, highly qualified uh, candidate. In fact, probably more qualified than most of the other people on the court. And but that, of course, is very different than, you know, in this. Yep. You know, that, that's a different kind of promise, you know. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. I was going to say, I actually, though, I actually, you know, even though I think he um, was able to keep that promise in a way that turned out, uh, you know, kind of all's well that ends well. Uh, I, I think it is more more problematic on a, on a court actually than in um, uh, an elected uh, oh, okay. position. Yeah, because I, I think uh, you know for 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 a court, you know, really the 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 concept that kind of justice is blind, uh, which I think is a good one seems to me a little bit at odds with that kind of identity politics, whereas... Because um, you're not representing anybody in the you're way You're not representing that, anybody, yeah. right. You're representing the law, and uh, and the law should be the same for everyone. I know it's not, but I think that's that's a concept that if we want to get there, it's kind of better to, you know, start working, it, using the right kind of language and, and working towards it. And uh, whereas I think, you know, ordinary politics, electoral politics... You know, and especially in the Democrats now, um, it's it's a coalition, and so co- you know, coalition partners want to be part of the power sharing. And I, to me, it's not so much. You know, you talked about the um, maybe some kind of remediation for the history of discrimination and things like that. To me, there's also just the element of um, this is a constituency that's a major constituency in the modern Democratic Party. Um, it it does a lot of the heavy lifting that helps get Democrats elected. And um, it wants uh, its own representatives to have a, a role uh, in in the in the governing coalitions, and I think that's legitimate. So I, I think it's it's actually doesn't bother me as much that he made a promise like that. Um, you know, in in this case, um, he's making it to a group that's helping get him get him elected and get senators elected. That that you know they'll 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 have a they'll have a role in in the governance. So I think that's okay. I just think it's a little bit unfortunate right now. Because there's actually, you know, an, there's a seat that was already going to be an open seat because Feinstein had already said she was not going to run for re-election again, and there's already uh, a primary battle going on, right. and there is exactly right. one person in that group, and I, I think who, who's an African American woman. That to me is a highly unfortunate situation. But if it wasn't for that particular situation, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think this was that bad of a thing. I hear that. I hear that. Well, why don't we move forward with what we had originally thought that we were going to be chatting about at the beginning of this show. Uh, So again, kind of our uh, thoughts and prayers to the family of everyone and the staff surrounding uh, uh, Dianne Feinstein. But what we need to move to, uh, Ken, is the GOP debate. So this week, obviously, the big item on the debate, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but we'll, we'll get there. Uh, was the, was the second GOGB debate, and this time uh, happening out at the Ronald Reagan Library, um, and that's out in California. But again, you may, people may not remember is is that Reagan was actually a California governor once upon a time before he launched that bid. Uh, uh, times change. Now, 
what makes this kind of hard in one sense, and so before we get into the into the details of what the arguments were and what the arguments maybe weren't and the bickering was, uh, you know, it's it's hard as an observer to not just do the math, right? And and if you do the math, and this has been circulating, it's not if you take all eight. All eight GOP candidates who are not named Trump, and you created out of them a single candidate who is taking on Trump, that only gives you 36.5% of the vote. Meanwhile, Trump is sitting on 56.6% of the vote. So what that means is, is if you take all eight candidates, all eight of them, mush them Plato style into a single candidate, they would still be losing by more than 20 percentage points to Trump. The closest individual who was at the debate, and that's DeSantis, sits at 14.4%. It, it mean, it, it, it's just nothing. Uh, and so, you know, Ken, obviously for me, the very first thing, it was not, it was very hard to not be asking myself as I was watching the debate, as I've been looking at the analysis of the debate to just say, oh, here's the kids table. Why am I paying a lot of attention to that? <laughs> yeah. and, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, I, I guess I do in one sense. I, I don't mean to suggest that I want Trump. I mean, obviously I am in the, the, the kind of the never Trump GOP column and and, and, and so I get that. So I'm not sitting here. It's not a raw, raw, but I'm also an empirical guy. Right. I'm a, I, and I, I don't see historical precedent for an individual to over to be overcome on that kind of deficit when all of the candidates combined are down by that many points. And so, you know, when I'm watching them at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library, it's hard for me not to think and eh, I, I think they've kind of missed it. Now, only seven were there, of course, because. Not everybody, not everybody had the, the, even the numbers for uh, the debate. And so meanwhile, Trump, he actually headed out to meet with union workers at his own event in Michigan. And, you know, this is something and I'm going to plug actually uh, yesterday, uh, this week, uh, I was able to talk with uh, scholar Lainey uh, News, uh, Newman. Uh, along with her co-author, uh, Theta Scotchpole, on their brand new book, uh, uh, Union Blues, which is, was precisely about this. And, and I couldn't help. I was like, wow, this is perfect timing it, it, because union members at the ground level have turned significantly Trumpian. And that's what their book is primarily about. And so it was hard not to see this and go, OK, we've got the kids table that hasn't figured it out. They're they're there you know, primarily uh, uh, kind of bickering with one another. And Trump is doing what many uh, uh, Republicans wouldn't have done for a long time, do things with unions and, and has supports there. And so, it, again, Trump's always looming over the GOP debate. But for me, it was really hard to not just see that presence everywhere and, and not really have as much vested interest in it in one way, uh, because I just don't see a path forward. I mean, maybe maybe I'm wrong, Ken. What do you think? Well, I, <laughs> you're not wrong. Um, I, I didn't <laughs> listen. Uh, when I, we agree, yeah, you know, it yeah, has yeah. to be right. Right. I, I couldn't even watch the debate and partly because it would just give me a headache, but partly because it's, it's so pointless. Um, I think that, you know, you, we could talk about some, you know, contingencies that didn't happen. Right. I mean, I think many of these uh, candidates early on 
um, because they're all basically mostly all cowardly. They they made a, a calculation that they didn't want to be the one to go after Trump. They just hoped somebody else would go after Trump and then they'd be the one that could stand to um, inherit. They would stand to inherit Trump's voters if, 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 if Trump was taken down. But since everyone decided to do that, um, except for Christie and Hutchinson, both of whom have no constituency whatsoever, um, uh, and actually those were the two who weren't looking to inherit uh, Trump's voters. They were looking to see if there's other Republican voters who are anti-Trump that they could get. Um, but I think given, given that that's how the, the rest of them decided to operate, you know, I'm going to just be pro-Trump. And then when Trump falls away, you know, his voters will like me because I was so pro-Trump. Um, that's not actually a way to get rid of Trump. And, and so, um, you know, they still, I guess, are gambling on a couple of other contingencies. Uh, it's possible that Trump actually goes to prison before the election. It's possible that Trump, uh, who's not really in good shape, you know, has, has a heart attack and, and gets physically incapacitated or dies before the election. And, and then I think, you know, one of these, one of these people that we're calling the kids table would probably become the nominee if, if, if something like that happens. But if, uh, if none of those contingencies happen, then, then Trump's going to, going to be the nominee. And I think some of them have already like actually switched to, uh, they're really running for the vice presidential nomination. And, uh, Vivek more than any of the others, I think is very, um, blatantly at this point running for the vice presidential nomination. So, um, so I think that's really all that's going on. It's going to be Trump's nomination unless, unless, uh, health or, uh, uh, incarceration, uh, t- takes him out of it. The other thing you said though, I just wanted to, cur- one thing I didn't agree about, um, oh, yeah. you, you, you said he spoke to union workers. I, you know, you should never believe anything Trump says. He didn't speak to any union workers. Uh, and, um, the Detroit news, uh, ran, uh, an article today where they tried to figure out who those 500 people in the crowd were. Um, and it, you know, this, the speech took place at a non-union workplace, the leaders of the uh, United Auto Workers unions and, and other unions, you know, told told their their told their um, their members not to go. And uh, when when the Detroit News started asking um, for names of people who was there and where they worked, um, nobody that organized the talk would help them at all. And when they when they launched their own, um, uh, you know, just put it out a call there, like if you were one of the people at this event, let us know. Um, there's only one single person they heard from a 55 year old uh, union auto worker named Doug King, who works for a company called Stellantis, um, who was there. And and to, the, to this to this day right now, after this Detroit News article came out, um, th- nobody's identified even one more uh, uh, labor union member who was among the, the, the 500 people in the audience. Fascinating. Well, I, I will say, you know, to, come, to kind of come back to that conversation we'd had, I didn't know the details of that, but there is a major split when it comes to voting in the, uh, you know, with unions between uh, Trump and, and uh, Biden that has not existed in the past. So I don't know that that specific, uh, uh, specific event, but uh, at the union worker level, Trump is, a rel- is relatively popular. Yeah, I think he did get a lot of votes in in Michigan in uh, and Pennsylvania. Um, in sixteen, yeah, and yeah, in sixteen. I mean, but those are states that he both those states he won in sixteen. He lost in twenty. Um, my, my sense is that his stock is is dropping with union labor in those states compared to where it was. Um, but certainly he he was doing well with them. But I think I, I find it actually pretty telling that he wasn't doing well enough even with those people now that he could actually speak to five hundred. He couldn't find five hundred union workers or even more than one who wanted to show up to see him at this speech. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to analyze that because, again, when you 
I guess you mean my guess is you've probably never been to a Trump event. <laughs> no, I've never been to Trump. Event. I, I have been, I have actually been to uh, a, a Trump a Trump event uh, in person. And uh, the the thing I was struck with, even in his first run, was the absolute comparatively chaotic nature uh, of how those events went down. Like you theoretically had tickets, but you don't really have tickets. Uh, in, in all honesty, having been up close and personal on a couple of those, I am inclined to my first would just say that seems like the order of business for the way that the Trump campaign has zero idea on a pragmatic level of what what they do. Like when you go to one of those events, Ken, it, it is it was the weirdest thing on that front. You know, and I've done a lot of in-person events with candidates. And generally, when you have tickets and things, it's in part because they want to know who's there and what's going on. The Trump event had no idea. They just kind of passed out these things online. They didn't keep track of it. Uh, as a matter of fact, <laughs> I'll tell you a little interesting story. The one in Florida I actually ended up getting, uh, getting into, I, we, we got in even after they were theoretically full because I just kind of kept talking with the next security guard through the lines. <laughs> And, and and got me and a couple other people from our from our institution in. Uh, that would never have happened at any other kind of event I was in, uh, uh, even for like lower level political fi- fi- figures. So uh, again, I'm not suggesting that that what you're what you're saying couldn't be the case. But having been up close and personal on several of them, I can just imagine that this actually has more to do with just the absolute chaotic way that his team handles these events than even anything else. Like, oh, yeah, we have union members. I don't know who was here. I have no idea who who got a ticket. I don't know. I could I can I can believe that. <laughs> yeah, I, I can hear I hear what you're saying, but I don't think it, it applies to this situation because um, this took this was not a public event. This this took place actually in an auto parts uh, factory, right? So that that was not at all open to the public. So the the, the auto parts manufacturer is Drake Enterprises. He's a Trump. Drake is a Trump supporter. This is a non-union workplace. Um, nobody who works there is in a union. And 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 Drake says, um, you know, you can you can Trump can come speak to the workers here in this non-union shop. And and it's not actually uh, opened up to just whoever wants to to come in. And then um, you know the the if the Trump campaign you know wanted to get people in there who were in unions, you know none worked there. So they they would have had to be reaching out either to unions or to people who are in unions and, and trying to find out, you know, who's in a union and can we get them here, which would have meant they, they would have had that information. And then what you also have here is the Detroit News did not rely only on the Trump campaign's uh, information. You know, after the Trump campaign couldn't tell them any union workers who were there, they, you know, sent the reporters out to try to find out who was there and they put it in the paper and on the website. We're just trying to find out if any union workers were there. If you're a union worker who was there, you know, we want to talk to you. You, you just and, get the one and, guy. Yeah, and they only got one guy. So it it I and I, it just seems to me very implausible that there were more union workers there because uh, they, first of all, they probably should have been invited by somebody who knew they were union members for them to be there in the first place. And second of all, even if if any just sort of came over and showed up because they're big Trump supporters and they're in a union, why why wouldn't they want to stand up and tell the uh, Detroit News that if it's being questioned whether any union workers were there and you're a pro-Trump union worker who was there, you know why wouldn't you want to you know tamp down that questioning by 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 saying yeah I was there. No, I mean, I, I, I don't have enough to push one way or the other on that. So, yeah, I hear you. So now I think this brings us to one last little bit of, uh, of uh, uh, Trump for a minute. And that's something that really I think some of their other co-hosts wanted us to get on, uh, Ken. And that was 
the odds of Trump beating Biden, right? So I, I think many of our fellow hosts think that the two of us are maybe a little um, too optimistic, maybe, that Trump can't win. Now, I'm not sure why. I, I don't know. We need to explore this because I'm not sure if I've actually even I haven't made much of a prediction on this front yet. And for me, that's at least because it, you know, it's been early for making uh, predictions. But where a lot of this comes from, and, and again, a lot of this also comes from our discord, has been that this week, the Washington Post had a poll where Trump beat Biden by 10 points. Now, a lot on the left have kind of poo-pooed. There's, there are, and there are, it, it, let's be clear, there are some potential issues with that poll. However, if you go over to, uh, the, to the general election matchups at Real Clear Politics, as of at least today, that's Friday, right now, there is a dead tie among the poll of polls between Trump and Biden, uh, 45.4 to 44.3. Uh, so Trump is up, we'll put that in quotes, 1.1 points, but that's within uh, the meta margin of, uh, of error. But then you start digging in a little bit deeper, right? You take a look at things like the direction of the country, those who approve of Biden, right? So you look at the direction of the country, 41.4%. That's a statistical tie for how voters view Trump, a tie. And then you look at things like, is the country on a wrong track? 67% of respondents say the country is on a wrong track. I mean, those are really terrible, terrible numbers for any incumbent. Uh, and, and really, the only uh, uh, good news on that kind of polling front uh, this week, just yesterday, was an Economist YouGov poll that came out uh, and, and I think gave Biden supporters some hope. It shows Biden up by five, which is a, which is a lead over where he had been in that poll in the past. Um, but as Politico has noted, Biden had a 9.5-point uh, lead over Trump at the meta level of polling by this point in the race, uh, and a double-digit lead in the polls from Fox News at this point in the race. And yet here we are, statistically tied. So, you know, and again, if, if, if the GOP debates primarily the kids' table and uh, Vivek is uh, running to be uh, Biden's new uh, uh, vice president. Trump's new vice president. It seems like that. Is that a, pl is that a plausibility? What do you think? I just made a point. No, right there. Is it a that, plausibility, that, Ken? I, there's a new word that, for you. That is a tale of sound and fury that signifies nothing. Uh, polling <laughs> this, this far out from an election means nothing, nothing. There's, there's no method you could use um, to predict who's going to win the, the, the 2024 election that would be uh, less credible than using a, a, a poll that's taken uh, more than a year before the election. You could read the entrails of shrimp's uh, intestines like the Romans used to do, and that, that would be more accurate than relying on polling uh, uh, six to eight, or what are we now, 14, 15 months out. I, I just wouldn't, it doesn't mean anything. You have to look at the, at the fundamentals. You know, Almost every election that's happened um, since 2018, uh, Democrats have overperformed uh, polls, and that's because uh, that's that's because of Trump. Um, uh, Trump has a, a you know he's got a very toxic and, and malignant um, uh, impact on elections. Um, he you know any any elections that are that are close, if if he picks one candidate, that candidate will lose. Um, he has not acquitted himself uh, since uh, January 6th of 20. 
21 in a way, you know, where if you're thinking there's people who voted for um, for, for Biden in that election, um, you know, there's nothing that Trump's done since then that's going to make any of them say, oh, you know what, Trump's really convinced me by now, you know, his his death threats against General Milley and stuff, that's what's going to make me go vote for for, for Trump now. So I, I think it's it's just nonsense. Also, some of the um, some of the states um, that were close uh, um, in 16 and even a little bit close in, in 20, you know, they're, they're the, some of the key states like Michigan and Pennsylvania are, are moving further and further into the blue columns. So I, I see no path that Trump could possibly have, you know, and when you talk about the low approval ratings that, that Biden has, and that may never change, you've got to remember that a, a lot of those people that are giving him low approval ratings are giving him that from his left. So those people would never consider voting for Trump. You know, if if it's a fixed choice, Trump or Biden, and you've got, you know, people who would really prefer to see uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez be the president, um, uh, they're going to give Biden a very low approval rating and they're going to vote for him. You know, so it doesn't uh, I think none of the none of the fundamentals have changed even in the slightest. All I'll say is I, I do agree that we are really early to try to understand those out, you know, those up and up polls. And you're absolutely right on that front. The one area where I'm going to have a little bit of disagreement as, as a presidential scholar is to say that those country right and wrong trap kind of questions do, during a president's term, give us some indication of how their reelection chances are. So it doesn't tell us a lot about particular matchups. But I th- think I hear your argument is effectively because we know it's Trump. You can interpret them in a way that is slightly different than what you might do under normal circumstances. But I do fully agree with you that in that, you know, in that year to 14 month timeline, those kinds of matchup polls are way too early to have any kind of deep meaning. But I will say, and that's why I was curious about those other numbers. Uh, and, and wanted to dig into that, those kind of wrong track, approving of Bidenomics, what do you think of economy? Those kinds of numbers are significantly correlated with in, in the difficult, you might even give it like a difficulty factor for the incumbent. Uh, and, and so on that front, I do see those matching up. And, and the last thing I'll say on that front is just to say that I still think it's too early for me to, uh, to give an honest and be okay with myself as a scholar. Uh, position on, you know, who's going to win or lose. So th- there, there's me. Uh, w- w- any last thoughts on that, Ken? Uh, yeah, the, uh, I'm trying to think. You said you said so much there. Um, I, 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 yeah, I, I think. Uh, um, yeah, I guess I, I don't. Well, no, I, I'll leave it at that. Actually, because I, I think I think I said everything before. So I'll just leave it at that. I hear you. Well, we're gonna just we're gonna stop for just a brief moment. We'll be right back. Okay, so Ken, I think it's time to move on to something that we've already covered on the show. But of course, today, tomorrow, we've got a deadline. And that is the spending and the shutdown threat uh, that is coming from the House. As a matter of fact, just minutes before we started recording, we were we were still getting up to date on the absolute newest things uh, that were happening. And so let's talk a little bit about this and the most recent developments on that front. And so what has happened since uh, uh, Mike and May had their opportunity to have a conversation about this a little bit earlier on was the Senate has now can passed uh, a bill and they were trying to hope to have something ready to go as soon as the House eventually brought something over. I mean, something to keep in mind about this. It's not unusual. You know, if you were to if you're if you're to read the news, it's not unusual 
to have these spending and these uh, debt increases kind of coming down to the wire. Uh, but what would be different is this oftentimes then gets punted into the Christmas area, <laughs> right? I mean, I think now if you take a look at uh, historically speaking, uh, we've seen this now happening for, oh, you know, a decade-ish if, I, if I've done my numbers correct. Um, but it always it is a great news pusher now. But what makes this different is is the odds for a shutdown as of today on Friday. Uh, I mean, it's really high. I believe, if I understand the timing correct, can you, before the show, you and I were kind of making sure we had our notes right on this. Uh, I believe that it's Saturday night that if we don't get the the short term funding bill passed by then, uh, that we we move into shutdown. And so the other new thing, which happened just here on Friday, just a few minutes ago, is is that 20 Republicans, a scooch over 20 Republicans actually, joined Democrats in opposing a significant uh, bill for Speaker Kevin McCarthy as he attempted to kind of navigate some of the Freedom Caucus and others uh, over these spending issues. And uh, he had already in this bill floated a number of items that he hoped was going to bring them on board. As a matter of fact, it included items uh, like no funding for, the, for Ukraine. Uh, it included some items about bringing salaries down to a dollar. Uh, it actually had a 30% slashing of the federal government uh, in an attempt to try to really get those uh, kind of conservatives on board. But despite that, uh, it was not able to happen. And now, Despite the setback, McCarthy has been saying as of, again, just a few minutes ago uh, that there's still a chance. Um, and he said, look, you've watched me time and again. And you, have you ever known me to quit after one time if it doesn't succeed? End quote. I mean, obviously talking about his own speakership, uh, but he, he, he faces a, a lot of problems. As a matter of fact, he didn't get and This was, I think, telling to me he didn't get green on board this time, which was one of the one of the people he had on his path to the speakership. And, and I think Gatz has been really straightforward with the American public. I mean, I, I don't like the guy, but he's being straightforward. He doesn't want anything to move forward, the end, because his fundamental problem is with McCarthy. He does not want McCarthy with the speaker's gavel. And again, we, the, the, the majority is so slim. I don't think there's really anything McCarthy can offer to Gatz that's going to get him to get his vote. And so unless he can convince some Democrats to get on board, I don't see a path forward. But the problem with that is if he tries to get Democrats on board, he's going to lose a lot of his, his moderate Republicans. And, and so I, I think that we are now this time, unlike other years where when we, we've talked about this, we're like, look, they're going to get it done before the end. I think it's likely we at least have a few days at least of, uh, of, uh, of shutdown. Ken, thoughts? Yeah, that all sounds just about right to me. Um, it maybe just I might have a few differences in sort in in terms of you know which is the horse and which is the cart. Yeah, and sure, some of the sure. things that you said, but basically agree with what you said. But I I, I actually think the shutdown um, is is the goal. So I think what what you were saying is that the the um, if you think about the the Freedom Caucus people, their goal would be to replace McCarthy, and their shutdown would be the the mechanism to do that. Whereas I think the shutdown itself is the goal. And uh, they're kind of actually indifferent about whether they maybe replace McCarthy or not. In fact, I don't know who they would want to replace him with. I don't think they could. Not only do I think they could not replace him with one of their own Freedom Caucus members because they wouldn't get a majority vote within the Republicans, but I actually think they wouldn't want to 
replace them with one of their own Freedom Caucus members because I think that they, they, they their whole their whole game is kind of running against the powers that be. Um, if they were the powers that be, they still wouldn't be able to achieve any of their uh, agenda, and they wouldn't be able to blame it on anybody else. So you know, I think having you know having the ability to have someone like McCarthy in there who's really trying to give them everything they want as best he can, um, and then calling him a rhino and blaming him when for all the dysfunction. I think that the Freedom Caucus people are, are better served by that. And I, and I think the reason we're having the shutdown is primarily because they want the shutdown. And the reason they want the shutdown is because it's both a performative thing to show that they basically are against the government. They don't think government does much. They don't think people are going to care that there's a shutdown. They think they're going to prove that that um, government's unnecessary. And, and also um, that it, it it will hinder the they think it will hinder the Biden administration. And then if there's a lot of if there's a lot of chaos and dysfunction because of a government shutdown during the Biden years, then they'll be able to um, run against the chaos and dysfunction, even though they they caused it. So I, I, I that's the, I guess I would say that the, the shutdown itself is the object of, of what's going on. But for but but in a way, it's it's um, comes out to the same place you are. And I think this shutdown will be longer than a few days. I, I think it could go a month or something. So, I, I mean, I, I, I understand the, you know, the cart and the horse. And so let's argue about that a little bit, since that's where we have a little bit of space, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'll say one of the things to keep in mind is it's not the totality of the Freedom Caucus. As a matter of fact, this past week, if you want to get really inside baseball, the Freedom Caucus actually changed some of their rules uh, for how they're voting on things. Uh, and, and to me, as an insider, when you take a look at that change, what I see is the primary goal of the majority of the Freedom Caucus seems to be the replacement of McCarthy. And then I see as, as part of that group, there's this subgroup who are the shutdown individuals. And I, I, I think that the Gads, uh, Bobert, Green, what they see as being this shutdown is kind of is, is a one, uh, uh, two birds with one stone. At the one hand, you get to take a really powerful stance against spending, while at the same time, you bring down the guy you don't really want to have. As a matter of fact, the early morning chatter here on Friday was that they were already kind of circling around uh, uh, McCarthy's number two when it comes to putting him in. Now, that would agree with you a little bit on the front was I don't think they want one of their own. But again, I think you really have to understand the Freedom Caucus as being two related but separate circles, right? Uh, you've kind of got, and I think it's easy to, to confuse the two groups because the, you know, Gats, Green, Bobert, they get all of the attention. They get all of the media coverage because they're the loud, bombastic Trump types. But they're the subgroup in there who really wants to have the two birds and they want McCarthy out. And, and I think that's what's causing these kinds of weird votes in ways that you wouldn't anticipate them. And I think it's also how you explain why you get you know, more than half the Freedom Caucus voting for this, but then you have this smaller subset uh, voting against it, even though McCarthy, as you've rightly fully pointing out, are trying to put things in like, you know, like uh, defunding Ukraine uh, and, and those overall spending cuts that I don't think are as popular across the board. And so that's why I put the heart, the court, the the course in the cart a little bit differently there. Yeah, and actually, you know, I think that's why in the end, even though we're both maybe still putting different emphasis on what's the horse and what the cart, our bottom line comes out the same because I I agree with you. There, if they could take McCarthy down and put in his own deputy, um, I feel like that's a bit of theater that they'd be, you know, they'd be happy for that because it would they'd flex their muscles and say we took a speaker down. Yeah. But but that's not a uh, that's not a uh, it's not 
if they're just putting in his own deputy, it's not achieving any substantive change, really. Um, you know, it, it's it's it, it, so it's only about the theater and it's only about the shutdown. That it's not like McCarthy's doing anything where they want they want someone else in there because that person will do something different. Um, if they make the substitution that you talk about, that that's not going to happen. There is no issue where um, McCarthy is uh, opposing them and and McCarthy's uh, deputy is going to be on their side. And, and and another reason I think that the the shutdown is is the goal, even as recently as a couple days ago, when we were already on on this collision course into the shutdown, you know, you mentioned spending, but they were actually still debating amongst themselves about whether that's the issue, or maybe they ought to change the issue to border security or something. And, you know, they, they weren't even, they were all more clear on the fact that, you know, we, we got to make some impossible demands that the Democrats will refuse um, so that we can then have a shutdown. And they were still like not clear about which was the demand they really wanted to make the most. Well, no, and I think that comes back in part to the kind of the Gats green and the Bobart function of that wing. And, and I and I maybe for better or for worse, I mean, because and this is something I've thought about a lot, right? You were talking about the show of it. There is a lot of work in political science. That, it, a lot of it goes back to this guy named David Mayhew, who effectively first argues that if you want to explain the behavior of Congress, you have to understand that everybody's trying to get reelected. And once you understand what we're trying to get reelected, you have to understand it's the it's kind of things like position taking that is more important with the public when it comes to voting. When you look at the actual numbers than the kinds of things that you actually do. And so I can't help but wonder if either the accidental, you know, kind of you you have enough people do enough things and you finally land on on it or the strategy here from kind of the Gats, Boebert and Green Wing of the party is effectively to say, look, the way you become relevant is through having highly publicized moments where you're taking positions, because that, again, in the literature suggests one of the most highly correlated reasons for people to win re-election, not kind of what you would think of as being the down and dirty of, uh, of passing stuff. Um, so, again, that's not that's not to say that I think that, OK, yay, let's that's what we ought to do. But it might explain empirically why you'd have that conversation, because I think when we have that conversation and you say that, and I think you rightfully say it from a place of like, look, that's nuts. OK, what's going to be the thing that we think is the most important for the shutdown? Is it the is it the is it border security or is it the is it the deficit? Which one? But it makes a lot of sense if you think, OK, the primary goal here is to get reelected and the primary goal is to have an issue, a high profile issue on which you're taking a stance. Yeah, well, yeah, I agree with that. So I think I think we're, we, yeah, again, everything I, everything you said, I basically agreed with. I was just sort of having a different perspective on yeah, how, yeah. how you get there. Yeah. See, I guess that's always the problem, Ken. We we agree about too many things, and yeah. so I, I mean that's that, that's what happens when you look at the empirical world. And <laughs> well, you know, one other thing, Trey, as, as I was just looking while we're talking at the yeah. list of who the twenty one are, there there are a few outliers among the twenty one Republicans. So they're actually not all. As you pointed out, which I hadn't realized that not everyone in the Freedom Caucus voted voted no on today's right, bill. Right, exactly. But 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 the other thing is not everyone who voted not every Republican who voted no on today's bill is in the Freedom Caucus. And uh, so someone like Nancy Mace, who's been positioning herself more in the center, not in the far right, um, she also voted no on this bill. And uh, um, and it could so, be in part because she doesn't like some of the the the, the takes towards the right. 
Yeah, I think that's right. So uh, there's a number of names here I don't actually know. So I don't know some of these people like uh, Eric Burleson or, or Eli Crane. I, I wouldn't know if they're in the Freedom Caucus or not, or Alex X. Mooney. Um, but it, it, it's uh, um, but at least I certainly do know Nancy Mace's name. And she, she seems struck me as one prominent Republican centrist who um, voted uh, on the side of the um, the Freedom Caucus. And of course, all the Democrats voted on that side also. They, they all voted no on the bill as well. Right now, I mean, and that that was a little bit more to be expected. But then I, I think what's going to start coming up then becomes the what are we it, it, can there be anything that ends up being the the pass? And at this juncture, I'm not sure what that is, um, because, again, for McCarthy, I'm not sure what he puts forward that then stops him from getting ousted. Uh, if I'm if, if my analysis is right about what that subset wants to do. But well, Ken, maybe what we should do is move forward uh, and talk a little bit about this week uh, in New York. So this week, a New York judge found that the Trump organization committed fraud. Uh, Justice Ergon of New York ruled that Trump and his co-defendants, a lot of his family, committed fraud and ordered the cancellation of certificates that some of his businesses need to operate in New York. Now, the ruling would only affect 10 of roughly his 500 entities. But that includes a number of his primary entities. Now, what this ultimately means is that an independent receiver would need to operate or liquidate the businesses in question. Uh, Trump team's already saying he's going to appeal. uh, But if it goes to court, which it is scheduled to, uh, this would be in terms of just what the fine the Trump organization would have to pay. Uh, which is somewhere in the realm of $250 million. You know, this kind of, this kind of civil issue can be a little bit confusing, Ken. Uh, what, what are we missing and what do we need to think about on those fronts? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you asked me that because I, I'm, uh, as much as I, I kind of love the way these, these cases are going, and I'd really love to see, uh, you know, Trump held as accountable as all that. Um, I, I think some of the reporting on this has overstated uh, how much has already happened and and how how much uh, is still got to happen. Um, so the 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 judge granted what's called a partial summary judgment. So the the partial summary judgment means he found that there are some issues where all the evidence is on one side and there's actually no evidence on the other side. And so something like that doesn't need to go to a jury. And that Um, comes, if I understand, because I want to be clear about this, because this interested me. It's because even in the material provided by the party, there's no other countervailing evidence, correct? In other words, like yeah. you had a chance to present it and everything you gave me doesn't give did, did I read did I understand yes. that part of that right? Right. So so for instance, if you're talking about something like the valuation of Mar-a-Lago, where um, you know, the tax assessor says Mar-a-Lago is worth nineteen million dollars. That's that's the property tax base that he's paying property tax on. And and Trump says it's worth um five hundred million dollars. So you've got a factual dispute. Is it, is it worth 19 million or is it worth 500 million or is it worth something else? Um, uh, now, the, the, the prosecutor, the, the, I call them prosecutors, but this is actually civil case. Right, it's the New prosecutor. York Attorney General's office. They're not really prosecutors. But the New York, General, the New York Attorney General's office you know, put in some evidence, not, not just the fact that the, the Palm Beach County tax assessor um, 
says that it's worth 19 million, but they put in like comparable sales evidence and stuff you'd see on Zillow and this and that. And and they actually acknowledged, you know, it, it, it might be worth more than 19 million. It might be worth as much as 50 million, but but it's no, definitely not worth 500 million. Um, and uh, um, Trump just put in zero evidence on that. Like he had no, he put in no evidence whatsoever about how he came up with the valuation of 500 million. Um, so the, the judge basically says, well, if you would have presented some evidence uh, that, that this is actually worth 500 million and you had some basis for saying that, you know, then we could have put that in front of a jury and you could have made that argument and the, the New York attorney general could have argued it's worth a lot less. And they could have decided whether your number was fraudulent or not. But since you just didn't put in any, you've, you've presented literally nothing to back up your, your valuation. And the New York attorney, attorney general has, has um, pr- presented a, a great deal of evidence of all types that are related to how property gets valued. Um, you know, there's no, there's nothing to submit to the jury. So, so that's the partial summary judgment. That's a very ordinary part of civil litigation that um, at the beginning of civil cases, judges, um, the parties get to do discovery. They get to, to subpoena each other and take depositions from each other and make each other produce documents and and they present each other with what they've got and and um, at, at that stage there there could certainly be uh, conflicts in the evidence which are the kinds of things that go to a jury but on on issues where only one side has any evidence and the other side is making claims that they can't support with any evidence um, then that doesn't go to a jury and and as I say this is a very normal part of how kind of all civil litigation proceeds now in in this case, um, the 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 attorney general's office um, said there's this this large number of properties um, where Trump has uh, told the his lenders and investors and creditors that the property is worth a whole ton of money, and then for the exact same property he's told the taxation authorities that it's it's worth hardly any money, and uh, um, usually it's somewhere in between, but closer to the to the low end uh, uh, that he's telling the tax people than to to the high end that he's telling the 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 low, the the banks and the the creditors um and, and 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 so because there was such a pattern of that and because Trump put in no evidence to explain um uh what you know where he was getting these high valuations from uh, the uh, in fact he put in some legal argumentation which was bogus which said it didn't I didn't really I just made these up but I'm I'm allowed to make them up because I I, I put some disclaimer on there saying that um, I'm I'm not sure if these are accurate or not um, and that was basically his argument um, the judge said well as a matter of law that's not a defense to fraud you can't just make stuff up and then get out of have a get out of fraud free card by saying but I'm not sure that what I just made up is accurate um, and so and so so th- this is all resolved and the and the 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 AG asked for 250 million, and a lot of the, um, in fact, the AG asked for a minimum of 250 million. It could could be more, according to the the complaint. Um, but 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 I think it's still a pretty long road. This is what I was going to say. I think it's still a pretty long road to winding up with a big number like that because the the next stage of what's going to happen, starting on Monday in front of the jury. Um, I think Trump is going to be able to make some arguments that are more plausible at the next stage. And that's why these things are going to a jury. Um, and at the next stage, they're not going to talk about whether he overvaluated these things or not, or whether that was fraudulent or not. But they're going to talk about, you know, how do you quantify what the harms were? How do you quantify what the damages were? So so Trump's going to, you know, even though the, the court already found, for instance, that when he borrowed money against Mar-a-Lago and listed it as being worth uh, uh, half a billion dollars, um, that that was fraudulent. 
um, he's going to be able to say, yeah, but, you know, the loans that I got, even by perpetuating a fraud that enabled me to get the loans, um, you know, I paid them back. So nobody was harmed by that. And, and, and that, um, to the extent that he can make those kind of arguments that, you know, even if I committed fraud, now we're at the stage of uh, trying to quantify what, what were the damages, what were the harms, what, how, how did anybody lose money because of my frauds? Um, I, I actually think it's going to be quite hard for the attorney general to get up to a number as high as the $250 million that, that uh, she's asked for. Now, that leads me to a question on this one, right? Because generally, when you're talking about civil suits like this and you have plaintiffs, the plaintiffs are another private party, right? And, and so they're, they're the ones trying to ascertain the number because they're saying, look, this is the way in which it harmed me. It cost me this. How does that work when, in this case, we, the, the plaintiff is, in fact, in, the attorney general? And, and, and how, would you, how would you even begin to kind of uh, prosecute, not prosecute, but how would you begin to demonstrate those kinds of harms when you're not the person who's actually harmed? Like, how does that work? That's an honest question. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a good one because in, um, in, in, New, York, in New York law, the, the New York civil fraud statute does allow the attorney general um, to um, uh, stand in for, for the public. So if, if there were frauds perpetuated in New York, um, on New Yorkers or on really anyone who was in New York, um, then the, the New York civil fraud statute does allow the, um, the attorney general to bring a civil action to recover damages. But the, but the burden of quantifying the damages is the same as it would be on a private plaintiff. Right. So the, 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 the mere fact that the attorney general can prove fraud, which to this judge's satisfaction and mine, she already did, um, doesn't doesn't absolve her of um, the, also the obligation. OK, if you want to get a judgment uh, for money damages for that fraud, you know, you've got to prove out the, the harms and the damages. And so I think there's different mechanisms that might be used. And I'm, I'm sure there are going to be some some damages. But I, I just think the big number that she asked for might be a, a reach. But, uh, you know, she she probably will be able to find um, um, some some people who lost money, like you might think of, um, you know, uh, people. If you think of the Trump University case, which was, I think, even part of the pattern or practice of frauds that gets mentioned in the background here, um, there were a lot of people who paid money to take courses at, at at Trump University. So, you know, maybe every single one of them didn't pay enough money to bring their own lawsuit to get it back. But the total amount of money that all those people were defrauded out of, you know, could be the kind of thing that it would be possible to get expert witnesses who can quantify that kind of thing and present evidence about it. Um, in the case of some of the um, Trump uh, properties, I think there were allegations along the lines of um, that they would um, literally lie about the, the value of um, comparable properties that had sold nearby, you know, so they, they'd put a condo up and they'd say, well, this is $3 million, which is a real steal because the one next door sold for $4 million, um, which would be just a total lie, right? And so in situations like that, um, you, you can, the, the buyers, if they overpaid because they were lied to like that, then there's harm to them. Um, now, I think with the banks and the creditors and in the investors, there's definitely going to be some who who didn't get all their money back. And and so the, um, the, the uh, AG, if she can find them and figure out how much money they lost because of things that Trump told them that, that weren't true, all, all that will go into the mix. But um, the problem is, I think plenty of them probably did get their money back. And, and so um, if, if they made a loan uh, because Trump wrote the wrong property valuation on a property and therefore they, they gave a mortgage against it, uh, but then they received back the mortgage payments, 
um, then that's not going to be something that goes into the damages, I wouldn't think. So that's why I think that not not every fraud that he committed is going to lead to, um, you know, the, the, such the, there wasn't going to be a high valuation of damages for every fraud he, he committed. But the AG is going to be held to a burden of proof of actually trying to quantify and prove out what were the damages from all his fraud. Yeah, I think everything that's so important because one, I think a lot of people just at a basic level don't understand the differences between those civil lawsuits and, you know, kind of prosecutorial situations where you have criminal issues at stake. And so you're kind of maybe reading in criminal things. And then at the same time, again, like as I was asking you those kinds of questions, because you have to remember in a civil case, as you're pointing out, having done something and found to be wrong is different than that kind of damages phase. And that's why I was very curious, because not every state has it so that you can have public redress uh, in, in, civil, uh, in civil cases. As a matter of fact, I mean, what, what, do you know what the breakdown is around the country? Uh, like how many states have that or not? I think most states, but not all, have statutes that are somewhat similar to New York's. But I think most states don't have, um, you know, the the resources that the New York Attorney General has, uh, okay. and so and so these would be very underutilized. Like I, I think so. Maybe know, that's why I'm not thinking of it is just in the fact of if you don't have the prosecutorial, excuse me, if you don't have the plaintiff power, <laughs> you yeah. know, the the pocketbook, you're just not going to see it happen on a regular basis. Right, because the New York Attorney General's office would have a civil fraud unit. So, you know, there's going to be prosecutors working full time on these civil fraud cases. And uh, I, I think that that may be something you don't see as much of in smaller states, even if they have a law that would uh, allow for that. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I don't have data on this, but my just my kind of gut sense is the New York the New York statute may be a little bit on the more aggressive side compared to a lot of states, but that um, a lot of states have some kind of statute that would allow the um, attorney general to uh, protect uh, generally consumers um, against frauds because there's, you know, there are there are a whole category of cases that could come up in every state where um, businesses are engaging in fraudulent practices that are defrauding large numbers of people out of money, but not not anybody out of enough money that they'd bring their own civil lawsuits. And so I think that's that's the kind of reason that the AGs usually do have some kind of authority like this. Well, let me move us forward so that we can at least hit one more story, if nothing else can. Uh, and that was that, you know, this is something that we've covered a, a number of times now. Uh, and that was Alabama uh, got denied by the U.S. Supreme Court in a short unwritten opinion uh, from using its current electoral map in 2024. Now, to go back to what we talked about a while, as a matter of fact, I, you know, we, I had interrogated you a little bit about what you thought was going to happen on this front way back when, when they were filing it. Uh, but effectively, uh, Alabama was ordered to add a black district in their state. And effectively, they said, nope, we're not going to do that and didn't do that. Uh, that was able to go through on a temporary basis. But then they still didn't do it. Uh, and so they were then brought back to court for having not uh, for, for defying the court's order. Uh, and this had come all the way now back to the Supreme Court to see what they were going to do. And you know, one of the questions I was having was, you know, what do you think is the likelihood what's going to happen? Uh, and I mean, the, 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 the Supreme Court really didn't have an answer other than to say, no, we're not going to we're not we're not going to hear your appeal. You're going to have to, to go with the lower court. You're going to have to uh, create the district. And I, I think a lot of people in the political commentary fronts were potentially, I, I think maybe you were one on, on this kind of front. And the last time we had talked, I didn't have a chance to review all of your comments, Ken, so I'll let you speak for yourself. Um, 
But, you know, you, you had been a little bit worried that a more corrupt Supreme Court might or a few of the corrupt Supreme Court justices in, in your terms uh, would come in and maybe save Alabama. But that doesn't seem to have happened here. Uh, so do you have any thoughts on the, the it's always a weird yeah. thing. What are your thoughts yeah. on the lack <laughs> of a comment like from a, the yeah. Supreme Court? Well, let me say, I, I think when we talked about it before, which was the first time that the Supreme Court uh, had the case and sustained the 11th Circuit ruling, um, I was pleasantly surprised that time. And that's what you're really remembering. I yeah. I, I actually thought that um, uh, that despite what I thought was a very clear violation of, of the only provision of the Voting Rights Act that the Supreme Court has not already struck down, um, um, I thought that they would, they would just use this as the vehicle to, to finish striking down the rest of the Voting Rights Act. Right. And 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 then they didn't do that. So I, 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 I think I, I you know, I st- stood corrected that first time around. Now, this time around, if we talked about it again, we you know what are they going to do on a second go around? Uh, I, I, I think I would have said or, you know, I can't remember if I did say anything, but I would have expected uh, that the once the Supreme Court d- ruled the first time around, they weren't going to change their mind on it. So, you know, they had already, you know, really. D- taken what was an unexpected and big step to say, we're still going to allow enforcement of the provisions of the Voting Rights Act that say, um, if a state legislature purposely draws a map in a way that's designed to not uh, let African-Americans have the same voting power as white people, um, that violates the Voting Rights Act. That's an illegal map. And uh, and and so that has been the standard. The the federal district court in this case found um, very clear evidence that, the, you know, this particular map in Alabama um, had been uh, a racial gerrymander specifically with borders specifically drawn to make sure that African-Americans who are almost half the population of Alabama uh, couldn't adopt, uh, couldn't uh, couldn't elect uh, more than uh, one of the uh, is it seven? They have seven seats or eight seats. I can't remember how many seats. Uh, they oh, I thought I had this here. Seven or eight. I did not write yeah, that down. Oh, yeah. yeah, I can't remember if it's seven or eight seats. But in, but the point is, African Americans are almost half the people in the state, and they they couldn't elect even more than one African American. And uh, um, and the the, uh, the 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 district court found facts proving out that that was a racial gerrymander. The Eleventh Circuit Court of Appeals, which is already it's a conservative court of appeals, and this particular panel had three Republican judges on it. Um, they all sustained the district court's findings. Um, the Supreme Supreme Court, you know, normally would not um, involve itself in second guessing factual findings. So I think when it came up to the Supreme Court, you know, the, the Supreme Court was going to accept the idea that this was a racial gerrymander. But what they were really going to rule on was whether we still have a rule against racial gerrymanders or not. Um, and in the and in in the case, they they said, yeah, we still do have a rule against racial gerrymanders, and we we expect that uh, we accept that this was a racial gerrymander. So this needs to go back down, and these districts need to be redrawn. Now, after the Supreme Court said that. Um, the kind of um, naked intransigence that the that the that the Alabama legislature engaged in after that, just simply refusing to follow a court order that had been entered by the district court in Alabama, affirmed by a unanimous panel on the Eleventh Circuit Court of Appeals, and affirmed by a majority in the U.S. Supreme Court, they they still wouldn't uh, adhere to it. Um, I, I think at that point it's a pretty foregone conclusion that you know one principle that's even more important to the Supreme Court than any issue about the Voting Rights Act is that uh, when they when they rule in a case their their ruling has to be implemented. Yeah, and that, that's that's really all this is about now. No, I, I think that's excellent, and I think that's a great way to to call it in for the show. So Ken, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been a great show.
Well, so that's it for this week's Politics Guys. And I just want to say, if you're not already supported of the Politics Guys, I really hope you'll consider becoming one, right? That's what makes this podcast go. It makes me have these conversations with Ken. It's what makes it possible for Mike to do interviews with really cool books or for me where uh, uh, shortly we're going to have a, another book review out uh, with uh, uh, Lainey Newman and her new book on Union Blues. That's possible because of supporters. And so I would love if you would make today a priority to become a supporter of the show. And, and I don't just say that in, in kind of an abstract way, right? Hey, you know, support us because it matters because we also offer you really cool things. So let me just list a few of the cool things you'll get if today you say, look, I do want to support the politics, guys. You get things like our supporters exclusive midweek show. One of the really cool things here in just a few minutes, Ken and myself, we are going to get to break away from kind of the news things. We've been going through the U.S. Constitution for this entire year, and we're going to finish the original text of the Constitution with Article 7. We'd love for you to join us. And then, hey, you're not out of luck. You can always go back, listen to all those shows, get caught up. Or maybe you want to start joining us because you're really more interested in, in civil liberties and you want to talk about the Bill of Rights. Well, guess what we're going to be doing after we get done uh, with the full text here and uh, Article 7, we're going to be heading into the Bill of Rights. We're going to head into all the amendments. So we've got a lot more time to go. That supporter-exclusive midweek show is one of the benefits you get when you become a supporter of the politics, guys. And I know that's a lot of fun for me, uh, and, and I'd love for you to be a part of that. Supporters get other cool things as well. You're going to be a part of our active Discord group. I was talking about that earlier in the show. I listen to what's going on Discord. We have conversations there. And then that affects what we do here on the show. So I would love to be talking with you two personally on Discord and get to know you a little bit better. So again, to get all of this stuff, and there's other things too, like Politics Guys gear, you just got to head to patreon.com slash politics guys. Again, that's patreon.com slash politics guys. You can take a look at all the different levels of support. You can decide what you want to give uh, and, and what level you want to be and what you're going to get in return for that, besides just the good feeling of knowing that you are a part of the Politics Guys family. Now, if Patreon is not your jam, don't forget, there's other ways of supporting as well. You can support us on Venmo, where we're at Politics Guys. You can support the show through PayPal. All of those support links are in the show notes. Or, of course, you can head to our website at politicsguys.com support. So again, if you want to see all those levels, head on to patreon.com slash politics, guys, or just go ahead and scroll down to the show notes and click right there and you can see what it can get for you. Now, if you'd like to get that midweek show, but you're just not in a position to financially do that right now, that is not a problem at all. Just shoot us an email at mail at politicsguys.com and we can get you set up. Now, whether you're a supporter or not, we would really appreciate it if you would subscribe to the Politics Guys rating this episode, reviewing this episode on the podcast app of your choice means the world. And again, sharing these things on social media is a big deal too. Now, if you've got questions, comments, corrections, gripe, or anything else you'd like to share with us, you can always email us at mail at politicsguys.com. We try to get back as quick as we can. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. You can DM us there. You'll find the links in the show notes. And it just occurs to me, there is no Twitter. You can get us on Facebook or the thing formerly known as Twitter, X, and you'll find all of that in the show notes. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are a wonderful group. They are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Marino, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. Thank you guys each so much. We'll be back with a brand new episode. I hope you'll join us then.